0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Pick up the smartphone closest to you. Chances are it's packed with state-of-the-art sensors that users of the brick-like phones at the turn of the millennium could only dream of. Accelerometers tell your phone how quickly you're walking. Magnetometers make sure that you're travelling in the right direction. Artificial intelligence software instructs your camera what is and isn't a face and who it's looking at. These sort of sensors aren't just revolutionising civilian life though. All of those sensors are producing a wealth of data. And that data promises a transparent battle space, one where everything is visible and therefore everything is at risk. Is it possible to survive on a battlefield where every weapon is as clever as a smartphone and they all talk to each other? Hello, and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Shashank Joshi, The Economist's defense editor. On today's show, I'll be exploring how newly accessible sensors are turning warfare into an intense competition between hiding and finding.
1: The ability to link sensors to commanders to weapon systems over the last 20 to 30 years has profoundly changed this battle of
0: signatures. I'll examine the tech enabling new ways of seeing through clouds and foliage.
2: This is just going to revolutionize the way we study our planet.
0: And how the ancient military art of concealment and deception might be updated for the digital age.
2: I would say
1: decoys become your only way of hiding because you're heading to a world where everything can be seen.
0: Any military tactician who wants to gain a clear advantage has long understood the significance of an eye in the sky. Now, the first time that humans observed the battlefield from a celestial viewpoint was back in April 1794. That was scarcely a decade after the Montgolfier brothers had invented the hot air balloon. A motley crew from the French aerostatic corps flew L'Entrepreneur, a tethered hydrogen balloon, over the battlefield at Fleurus, now Belgium. Spotters on that balloon told their comrades down below about the things they saw, the movement of their enemies, using semaphore flags. France won the battle. Military ballooning didn't really come into its own until the American Civil War and its importance was pretty short lived. But aerial reconnaissance would become the task of aeroplanes and then satellites. But even as the method of getting up in the sky changed, the means of sensing didn't. What struck the retinas of those French balloonists was ultimately the same thing which struck the film of those panoramic cameras aboard America's first spy satellites, visible light. But the reliance on visible light has a couple of problems, known even to those balloonists of the late 18th century. That is, nighttime and clouds. And that's where synthetic aperture radar, or SAR, comes in.
2: The advantage of microwave sensors is that you can see, quote-unquote, the surface of the Earth, regardless of almost any type of weather condition. My name is Dr. Erica Podest, and I'm a scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The focus of my work is to use satellite data, specifically synthetic aperture radar, or SAR, to study our planet, specifically wetland ecosystems and vegetation in the northern high latitudes. There are a number of different satellite sensors in space that continuously observe and monitor our planet. And these sensors monitor different components of our planet related to either the oceans, the atmosphere, or the continents, terrestrial ecosystems. And they use specific types of technologies. A common technology to study the land masses, for example, the continents, is something called optical. And that is similar to a camera where you take a picture, except it also acquires information in frequencies that are beyond what you can see with your naked eye. So how can a synthetic aperture radar see through darkness and see through cloud the sensors send out a signal that signal when it reaches the surface of the planet scatters in different directions and part of that energy is scattered back towards the satellite it looks like an ultrasound it's a different frequency than an ultrasound but it's very much analogous to an ultrasound and so Because it is what we call an active system, because these sensors have their own illumination source, then this energy can penetrate through clouds. And it doesn't really matter if it's daytime conditions or nighttime conditions. We can still capture these images of the surface of our planet.
0: And the ability to see through clouds is no small thing.
2: There's something called SAR interferometry, which allows us to measure the displacement of the land surface on the order of centimeters. It allows us to see tectonic movements, risks for volcanic eruptions, for example, displacements in the land surface whenever an earthquake occurs. It also allows us to study certain ecosystems, wetland ecosystems, the inundation dynamics of wetland ecosystems, forest cover, deforestation, forest degradation, things that are important in terms of how our ecosystems are changing. I think as more data is becoming available, this community of users will continue to grow. And this is just gonna revolutionize the way we study our planet, because it really does allow us to continuously monitor our planet.
0: Unsurprisingly, the technology has uses beyond just understanding the climate.
3: We literally monitor entire countries or entire continents on a weekly basis.
0: Adam Maho is CEO and co-founder of Ursa. That's a startup based in Ithaca. His company uses satellite pictures for business intelligence. It was here in the Galwan Valley, where on the evening of June 15th, soldiers from India and China engaged in a deadly battle. This is Ursa monitoring Indian and Chinese forces along their disputed border.
3: When we see a change of interest, yeah, you know, we can really use that to then that say this is another sensor that we want to work with to go and you know take a deeper look. That's how we partner and work with this whole ecosystem. We'll say, Okay, cool. We saw a change in a facility, and we have a whole system that says, Hey, this flag's a change. Is this interesting? If it is, you know, a couple hours later we can have another sensor. Cued up, tasks and, and bring something high resolution in and really get a really interesting view as to what was going on in there.
4: The best example of this is Ursa's uh, work with circular oil storage tanks. Basically, they look at every oil storage tank on the planet every day.
0: Jack O'Connor is a former official at the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center. He knows more than most about how to see things from space.
4: They have algorithms that will essentially, these are called floating roof oil tanks. The roof drops when the tank is empty and it comes up towards the top when the tank is full. Mm -hmm. And they measure the depth of the roof on every tank and have really brought a lot of granularity to the petroleum distribution market. So for certain questions and certain objects, ships, shipping containers, rail cars, vehicles, the algorithms do very well.
0: Now, these are civilian and business applications, but the technology has uses for soldiers and spooks as well.
4: If you were in a professional intelligence agency, now you have additional sources and you can check the orbits to see, do they give me coverage at times when I can't get it otherwise? And do they give me coverage of places that I couldn't previously get before?
0: The ability to see through poor weather, day or night, lends itself particularly well to tracking things that are changing over time the perfect target is a military buildup, like the one underway just now on the Russia-Ukraine border. Now, the imagery might not be good enough to identify a specific tank, but it is good enough to count the number of them. And there are some even more creative applications than that.
4: My favourite is, and it's a, again North Korea, it's the issue of subsidence, where they measured the fact that where they were doing most of their underground testing is altering the geology of the mountains and they believe that they may have had sort of an internal collapse in one of their test sites. And that's the kind of thing where the SAR, with some high-powered computer remote sensing, that's the kind of subtlety that you can't get with electro-optical. And that's one of the things that also has changed it because you now can get such frequent coverage from all the commercial sensors that it's easy to track change over time. So not only do you spot the change, but you can go back and discover when it started.
0: The ability to picture any site on earth, regardless of the weather, also allows militaries to create an archive that they can go back and check after the fact. Having lots of satellite images at relatively low prices is useful for another reason as well. It helps fuel the machine learning algorithms that have powered lots of recent advances in artificial intelligence. They consume lots of well-structured data to learn how to recognize all sorts of things. Here's Adam Maha again.
3: For a single customer, we may be monitoring over 20,000 facilities on a weekly basis. And if you were like to do that in the, you know, in a a traditional method a few years ago. I mean, there would have been hundreds of analysts going through that imagery. And, you know, so today, you know, it's less than a full-time job for one person to monitor over 20,000 sites.
0: Persistent surveillance systems can stare at any spot on Earth continuously. It's a bit like the scene with the T-Rex in Jurassic Park.
2: Keep absolutely still. This is
0: based on movement. If you move, the dinosaur will eat you.
1: The ability to link sensors to commanders to weapon systems over the last 20 to 30 years has profoundly changed this battle of signatures.
0: Mick Ryan, until recently, was head of Australia's Defence College. He's also the author of a new book called War Transformed. He knows firsthand how important it is to manage your signature. That is the telltale signs that show sensors what you are and where you are.
1: It's also changed our conception of time on the battlefield because it's sped up the time between when you see something, when you report it, and when it's attacked. You know, I think the Ukrainian operations with the Russians, you knew that if there was a UAV overhead in 10 minutes, there was going to be a fire mission coming down on you. That was the benchmark I used as a brigade commander. It was like, if we think we've been spotted, we have 10 minutes. And if we're not gone, we're dead.
0: The ability to use radar and all sorts of other sensors to track moving objects from space and from the air in real time is getting closer and closer. There are very few places, if any, on the surface of the earth that are now free from such potential surveillance. But below the surface of the seas is another story.
5: Our founder likes to tell a story of when we served on submarines. You could put your coffee cup on the sonar computer to keep your coffee warm. That's how much heat those legacy computers put out. Big cabinets with lots of electrical current running through them. Ken Perry served in the US
0: Navy as the captain of a nuclear missile submarine. Since then, sonar, the method for using sound
5: to navigate or detect other vessels, has become a lot slimmer. People find it hard to get their arms around the fact that we're operating a towed passive acoustic sonar array with autonomous digital signal processing and rapid communications on just a handful of watts. Persistent ocean sensing, classifying, and reporting, all using much less wattage than a light bulb here in my office.
0: The idea that submarines hiding underwater are undetectable is fundamental not just for modern naval warfare, but also modern nuclear deterrence. The idea is that even if an adversary takes out your land-based weapons, you always have the ability to retaliate with your submarines hiding in the depths. But if a country could find and destroy those subs, they could disarm you and launch their nukes without retaliation. Thankfully, the ocean is arguably the best hiding place on the planet. Daylight is pretty much undetectable at depths of more than a couple of hundred metres. Radio waves are even worse, so underwater radar is a non-starter. Sound does carry, but modern submarines can be astonishingly silent. The noise made by a new ballistic missile submarine, what navies call SSBNs, is less than a millionth of the racket made by the first such boats in the 1950s. Ultimately, the difficulty of detecting things underwater is just a matter of physics.
1: On the ground will still be much easier than the ocean. It'll always be harder. Water is dense, uh, water is incompressible largely, so there's going to be a much more difficult time doing sensing underwater than there is anywhere else.
0: Brian Clark is a former submariner now at the Hudson Institute, a think tank in Washington. He explains how advances in material sciences have allowed navies to listen in new ways.
1: We have transitioned to a new generation of vector sensors that are much more sensitive to sound waves. So you kind of used to be more or less a piezoelectric cell or you're kind of like a microphone. So essentially, you know, the, you know, old style acoustic hydrophones worked kind of like a microphone. You know, they were relatively sensitive, but you had, they had to be relatively large and they need a lot of electricity. So these newer sensors use different materials that allow them to essentially be a solid-state detector that flexes from a slight flex in the material due to the incoming sound wave, a change in the voltage that could be easily measured by the line array, and then turned into a signal. These vector sensors are kind of the new direction that we're going to. So basically, it's the detection of the change in the positioning of this line array generates a signal that's much more sensitive than your traditional hydrophone.
0: As those sensors get smaller, thanks to the same things that allow you to have ever smaller and more fancy mobile phones, they can be put onto smaller things, and that includes uncrewed surface vessels, in other words, drones that sail. The ocean is full of power and information. The wave glider is designed to capture both. The wave glider is a small, wedge shaped sea drone. It was first developed to listen to humpback whales and its ability to carry all sorts of sensors slowly through the seas has seen them put to all kinds of uses by researchers and navies alike. In 2016, wavegliders were reportedly used to detect and track a Royal Navy diesel submarine in an exercise. Ken Perry, who you heard from earlier, is now vice president of Thayer Marne. That's a Connecticut-based firm which builds maritime surveillance platforms, in other words, ships that spot things at sea.
5: I work for a company that does this and does it very well, including significant success with the U.S. Navy improving performance with our unmanned systems deployed out in the middle of the ocean. The fact is small unmanned systems with acoustic arrays are quite capable of very relevant anti-submarine warfare performance against real targets, high-end warships. Only those types of systems, low power, affordable, scalable, can be produced and managed in a way that will give you broad area coverage at acceptable cost. These systems can provide surveillance coverage over a million square miles at a fraction of the cost of a single frigate or submarine, and do it in a way where the risk of those operations is markedly lower than the risk of putting a crewed submarine or a crewed frigate or maritime patrol aircraft in that environment.
0: The idea is that you might eventually have an ocean full of sensors, listening out for submarines all the time. DARPA, which is the Pentagon agency charged with thinking blue sky thoughts, is working on something it calls an Ocean of Things project that would contain thousands of low-cost floats that drift as a distributed sensor network. The idea is that these armadas of prowling hydrophones are constantly sharing what they hear with ships on the surface, drones in the sky and other sensors, creating a big oceanic surveillance dragnet for what navies call anti-submarine warfare, or ASW.
5: First of all, these systems right now are very small systems. A ship of any size, seriously, would likely not even know it hit one of these systems. And we found that, generally speaking, if one of our systems gets real close to an ocean-going ship, the bow wave of the ship usually pushes these small systems right out of the way.
0: So if you've got lots of sensors and you fill the ocean with them, you'll catch submarines, right? Not necessarily. The problem is that the ocean is enormous, and even millions of sensors wouldn't fill it. The way around that historically has been to catch submarines as they pass through choke points. Since the 1980s, America and its allies have relied on something called the Fixed Distributed System, FDS. That is a big chain of passive acoustic sensors tethered to the ocean floor, floating at just the right depth to pick out submarine noises moving above them, connected together by fibre optic cables.
1: So the passive acoustic approach to ASW, which heretofore has proven to be the only one that is in any way efficient, and certainly the only one that would work against nuclear submarines.
0: Owen Cote is a submarine expert at MIT. He says that these sort of passive arrays, focused on choke points, they can't cover entire oceans, are for now the only really effective method of detecting the quietest submarines.
6: That approach is, is the only way to deal with nuclear submarines, no matter how loud they are. right? Because they can just run around ships that are using active sonar. They can get behind them. Um, they can do all kinds of things. They can
3: use their speed and their, their endurance underwater to, to defeat that approach.
0: But systems like FDS have their limits. Drones can talk to each other with radio waves. Underwater sensors can't. They could use acoustic modems, which are slow and unwieldy. Or they have to be linked by cables. And the problem is that cables can be cut. What that means is that geography matters a great deal. In the Atlantic, America was able to lay its underwater sonar nets across incredibly deep water and have the cables come up sharply right onto Allied soil in the British Isles. Other countries are not so lucky.
6: China can deploy, could if they wanted to, deploy similar arrays in those same choke points. But to do that, they'd have to lay fibre cable all the way across the South China Sea or the East China Sea. At depths at which anything that you do fishing, Anything like that, you could be
0: cutting those cables constantly. So when it comes to hiding and finding submarines, it's not just about the technology you have. It's also about the geography you're blessed or cursed with. Navies fight over the seabed they have, not the ones they would like. And what that means is that some will find it easier to keep their submarines hidden than others. Coming up after the break, how to deceive an AI with a well-placed twig or a flat pack tank.
6: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
0: One way to defeat senses is to blow them up or blow up the thing carrying them, like a drone. But there are more sophisticated and refined ways of hiding. One of them is deception. That can involve hiding what is real, using camouflage, or it can involve showing the sensor something fake, like a decoy.
1: I would say decoys become your only way of hiding because you're heading to a world where everything can be seen.
0: Dr Benjamin Jensen teaches at American University in Washington DC and he's an expert on military innovation. He told me that the profusion of sensors is creating a flood of data that can be incredibly useful but you can also drown in it.
1: As the cost of search declines, that increases the probability that things will be found. Um, and let me make it even weirder. If I wanted to identify strategic or operational level mobilization in the 21st century for looking at my own country, the US, the first thing I would do is use Google Trends. I would look at major bases and see soldiers looking for short time storage, power of attorney. There's also certain human signatures associated with our daily life, um, that even when you have the best units and they're hiding, Right? Do divorce rates outside of forced Bragg indicate operations? So there's not just being seen physically, it's yeah. also seen in kind of the residual, or residual humanity, for lack of a better term. In that world of persistent cheap stare, the only way to hide becomes decoys. And why I think even cheap decoys work is the following. Capital labour substitution where I started. The more things I see, I can't dedicate human eyeballs. And even if I do dedicate human eyeballs, it's like a lazy eyeball. It's somebody who's staring at the same image over and over again, gets lured into a sense of complacency, just based upon basic cognitive processes.
0: But deceiving a person and deceiving a computer are two very different things. Here's an example from the American Marine Corps.
1: If you show the algorithm what it wants to see, it cannot resist. It's like a drug addict being given a drug. It just it just can't resist. Here's a funny story. This wasn't mine. I was told to it, but it really got me thinking about this. So they had this high-end, like, sentry camera they put on this uh, urban training area, right? And the idea was that it would use basic image recognition algorithms to detect when someone was trying to sneak up on it. Because if you think about that, that'd be an amazing application. I'm going to have robotic sentries to guard my installations. Totally doable with the technology right now. First couple of Marines that are sneaking up on it, they're low crawling. They're being as sneaky as they can. Well, the algorithm knows to see sneaky. Sneaky equals threat, threat identified. Well, people start getting creative. So one Marine grabs a piece of tree bark and puts it in front of his face and walks right up to it with a regular gait. Well, bark bark equals tree. Tree is not threat. Yeah, you know, in like you
6: know a really simple analogy of it is, you know, in like Gallipoli, World War One, where they made the drip triggers, and they, the war rifles would fire throughout the night to mm. make it sound like there were still people there.
0: Steen Bisgaard, the founder of a firm called Guard Tech, explained to me that you've got to fool a sensor in its own language.
6: That was just an audible trick to, and you know, to provide an effect. Um, and what they were trying to fool was soldiers on the enemy trench, whereas you know. You come forward 100 years, what is the next grip trigger going to look like? How do do you do it to fool the next sensor or smart system, which is no longer a person's ear, but instead it could be a F 35 or, you know, a Russian aircraft or some sort of satellite sensor? Or, you know, it it really does layer a very old thing of perception with the most cutting edge
0: systems. His company, based in Australia, builds replica vehicles to serve as both practice targets and decoys. They create very convincing mobile copies of a British Challenger 2 tank, among other armoured vehicles, one with a turret and guns that move, the heat signature of a big diesel engine, and a radio transmitter that works at military wavelengths. In other words, a fake tank that screams tankiness on every dimension. We ship it, it's all flat-packed, and um, it's like the IKEA of tanks, essentially. They can put it together from the pallet, attach the robotics, and hit go, and the thing will network and start moving around. How long does it take to set the thing up?
6: Less than an hour is what a trained crew can do with just power tools. It is even cheaper than the anti-armoured missile they would mistakenly destroy it with. It is far, far cheaper. Say you were trying to defend a Charlie 2 tank by having decoys on the field and create a force protection. This is, you know, about a 20th of the cost less, a uh, 50th. It's, it's, it's far cheaper. We, I think we're the only company in the world to make, you know, highly mobile deception platforms that have a number of different movement profiles, not just forward, backwards, left, right, but also, you know, cannons and missiles that move in the correct speeds and everything like that.
0: This approach relies on fooling a sensor by showing it something that looks real but isn't. That approach can be scaled up.
7: We realise now with the modern sensors and especially the massive coverage is that it is really, really difficult to avoid being detected.
0: Peter Bedwar is a chief technology officer for Saab, a Swedish arms company.
7: So then you can instead then go for make sure that you saturate your adversary's sensors and also their situation awareness by creating so many false targets, whether it's decoys or or if it's electromagnetically generated in a jammer, but you actually give the opponent so much information to digest that he can't really distinguish between where your troops are and what are just decoys. So creating some kind of swarms in the sensor that, that completely saturates their analysis."
0: Forcing a system to look harder at more things will lead it to make more mistakes, stretch it far enough and it could even collapse, as a poorly configured internet server does when hackers mount a denial of service attack by bombarding it with traffic.
7: If you introduce thousands of false targets into radar, you will completely saturate not only the, the radar, but the entire command and control system. What we do is normally, I mean, you, you listen to, to the sensor or radar emissions and then you use different kinds of techniques to retransmit or spoof. This can be done uh, with uh, really sophisticated jammer pods, for instance, and then you can have techniques where you actually try to hide. From a radar point of view, you can create a comparison to the optical range. You can actually say that you hide more or less in in a fog or something. You can create electromagnetic fog, which makes it possible for you to hide an aircraft, for instance.
0: If a sensor looks at a decoy long enough and closely enough, it may not be fooled forever. But if it can be fooled for just long enough, that may be all that matters. The problem is that AIs and their masters learn. In time, they'll rumble hacks like this, but the basics of concealment and deception can all be updated for the digital age. The idea of a military panopticon, an all-seeing system, is still some way away.
4: There's no reason to believe that the Earth's surface is transparent. I've seen no evidence of covered and concealed units getting slaughtered by modern technology
0: really ever. Certainly not in recent warfare either. Stephen Biddle of Columbia University is an expert on military affairs. He's sceptical that the censor revolution is as dramatic a transformation as some people claim. According to Mr Biddle, over the past 30 years, cover and concealment, along with good old-fashioned tactics like that, have routinely allowed forces facing even American precision weapons to avoid major casualties. He thinks that defenders can and will adapt.
1: My work
4: hypothesis is that we're headed towards a re- discovery of close combat, because the kinds of air delivered or missile delivered that are descending you, on you from the sky, threats to tanks, are increasingly vulnerable, whereas 120-millimeter armor-piercing, fin-stabilized, discarding sabo is essentially impossible to shoot down. There's going to be an increasing divide between those whose casualty rates go up a little and those whose casualty rates go up a lot. Which is another way of saying the importance of covering concealment is going up, not down.
0: But as sensors get better, more numerous, better connected, finding that terrain to conceal yourself in is going to become harder. Here's Ben Jensen again.
1: You can still use terrain to mask movement, Mm-hmm. But the type of terrain required to mask movement in an air of persistent stare is declining.
3: Mm. So
1: you are quickly finding yourself, if, if all of us are hiding in the same Norwegian fjord, it's going to get pretty crowded. Right? Yeah. So it, <laughs> the question is, like, what is the degree of micro-terrain? It basically will force you to either seek, there'll be less terrain you can hide on, and smaller formations required to go there to hide.
0: Some people think that if sensors can see everything, and therefore shoot at everything, this means ground forces are in trouble. They point to the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2020, in which Azerbaijan used cheap Turkish drones and loitering missiles, kamikaze drones, to rampage through Armenian forces. In this telling, the future of warfare is more blitzkrieg. Fast, bloody, destructive and quick. But there's another view as well. If sensors can see everything, that means both defenders and attackers have to move more carefully, wrapping themselves in decoys, moving carefully among the terrain. Remember the T-Rex. What that means is that the result may be a slower, messier and more complicated form of warfare, one that perhaps favours the defence as much as the attack. Thank you for listening to Babbage. If that wet your appetite, why not pick up a copy of my full report on military technology in the most recent issue of The Economist? And for lots more, take out the subscription to the paper as well. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The show today was produced and mixed by William Warren, with additional help from Nico Raufast. The executive producer was Hannah Marino. I'm Shashank Joshi, and in London, this is The Economist.